My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Those are the first three verses of Psalm 45, which is the psalm appointed for today, Tuesday, July the 20th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. That psalm is a royal psalm, and it's written to, to extol the virtues of the king of Israel. But we know who the true king of Israel is. And so ultimately, when we read that psalm, we read it with Jesus in mind, and we are singing this psalm to him when we read that. And so just so you get the, um, the context of that psalm, but that's, that's exactly what it is. Um, I'll tell you, it's been an interesting time here recently. We've got so much going on in our lives, and, and it's hard to keep up with everything. So I want to wish my uh, oldest son, Pelham, a happy birthday today. He'll turn 30 today, and so we're proud of him and all that he's done and all that he's accomplished, and, and we just continue to pray that the Lord will be with him in all that he does. Um, we're continuing our studies here in First Samuel um, chapter 25, 1 to, tw- 1 to 22, the um, book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 14, 1 to 18, and then the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, 21 to 34. We're continuing to follow the life of David as he runs from Saul at, in, the, in the period of time after he has been anointed the king, but prior to his ascension to an acclamation in that role as king. And so now you remember yesterday, he, he, he and Saul parted ways. Saul went back home and stopped trying to murder David that it said David went up to the stronghold. And so now he and his men are still in exile, essentially. And, and so Samuel dies is the beginning of our um, lesson today. And so now the every all, everything about the leadership mantle is passed. We have no idea who the main priest in Israel is at this time. This is all about David and Saul. And all of Israel assembled and mourned for Samuel, and they buried him in his house in Ramah. And then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. David and his men are spending all this time in the wilderness um, because they can't come into the cities because they, they, they know that Saul is coming after them. And so David is collecting these men, and, and they're a certain kind of people. And we see what kind of people they are here when they're in the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was shearing time in Carmel. And so the man's name is Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. He was, he was a descendant of Caleb, who was one of the two spies who had gone into the land with, with the 12 total and come back and given a good report and said, let's go. Let's fight this battle. And Jewish lore has Caleb being married to uh, Miriam, the, the sister of, um, of Moses. <clears throat> so why this man is this way is unknown. <laughs> but David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. And that's a festival time whenever you do this, this activity. And so David sent ten young men. And he said, go up and tell him, greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. In other words, I come completely in peace. I mean no harm against you, and, and this will be my byword, is peace. So that, that's the way in which we come to you. And I hear that you have shearers. Your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. 
and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. In other words, we didn't take a single thing from your flocks and herds, nothing. We protected your people, but we didn't take anything at all for ourselves, for the uh, protection that we provided. You should ask your young men, and they'll tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your servant David. So he's asking for not tribute. He's just asking for the favor of providing food for them since they have provided protection and have been honorable among Nabal's men. And when they came, Nabal's response was, who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? He knows exactly who he is. These are not questions. They're rhetorical questions because he goes on to say there are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. In other words, David shouldn't be out here. He should be with Saul. And so he's essentially taking a political position and a political side here and siding with Saul. And he says, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shearers and give it to men who now come from I don't know where? So David's young men went back and told him that. And David said, all right, everybody put a sword on. We're going to go down there. We're going to kill them all, every single one of them. So David takes 400 men down there with him. But one of the young men, and we're, it's one of the young men, the servants of, um, of Nabal, go to Abigail, Nabal's wife, and they tell him, hey, David sent messengers. And so she knows who David is as well, <clears throat> out, to the, out of the wilderness to greet our master. And he railed at them. Yet the truth is the men were really good to us and we suffered no harm and we didn't miss anything as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both day and night. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. In other words, they protected us and kept us safe. We didn't lose anything while we were out there because of these guys. And he said, now therefore know this and consider what you should do for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one can't speak to him. In other words, there's nothing you can say to this idiot husband of yours that will change his mind. So, so Abigail doesn't. <laughs> she just makes the preparations. He gets 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, five sails of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. It said, y'all go on out that way. I'll be there in a few minutes. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And so she rode out and came down under the cover of the mountain, and David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David, what we're told at the end of this lesson is David had said, I'm going to kill them all, every single one of them. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. And so David is prepared to kill everybody, and Abigail is going out to meet them to, to provide some sort of appeasement and, and to, to say, please don't do this. She has much to lose, obviously, in all of this um, because he's a wealthy man. And, but, but Abigail has a nobler character than that, let's say. We're going to see more about Abigail in the next couple of days. But, but the important thing here is, is that, that, that David has, has promised peace and he has provided peace. And, and instead of, of that peace returning to him, it's he's being vilified by this man Nabal and David takes it personally and he's going to come after him he's going to destroy them all well it was only one man who did this who told him this but David is so angry after all they've done and the way that they have behaved among his men and now they they deny him any sort of um courtesy even there's there's no um 
hospitality provided to David and his men after they've done so much in, in providing for and taking care of the shepherds as they've been in the field. <clears throat> and remember, hospitality is, is one of the most important virtues in Judaism as it was everywhere in the ancient Near East, but it was particularly important in Judaism. And, and so here Nabal has, has turned himself away from that completely in the way that he deals with David. But Abigail is providing lavishly for them. And so in the gospel, Jesus talks in telling parable, continuing to tell parable, says, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed, not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except it be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And so Jesus is making the obvious statement that you don't bring a lamp indoors and then hide that lamp. You use it for a particular reason. You bring it in to make everything seen and seeable. And he says, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has shall be taken away. It's to, how do we live? And do we live in the light, or do we live in the darkness? Do we, are we kind of people who can be trusted, or are we not the kind of people who can be trusted? And he tells so many parables about whether or not you can trust a servant or, or something as kingdoms or talents or whatever have been entrusted to servants. And then how do the servants deal with the things that belong to their masters? And so it's, that, it's the continuation of any one of those parables. And then he talks about the mystery of the kingdom and, the, and uses this agricultural metaphor of a man who sows seeds on the ground, then he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know all the biology and the chemistry behind what makes a seed sprout and grow and produce. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest is coming. And, you know, yesterday I, I made the argument for you that, that somebody was trying to say that the Enlightenment, not Christianity or Judeo-Christianity, was the basis for um the kind of society we have today, and, and I told them that without the and the Judeo-Christian worldview, there is no enlightenment. And so it's the same way with this argument, because we can look at it in our day and say we do understand the biology and the chemistry and all of that kind of stuff. And so we can improve the soil. We can do all kinds of things to improve the yield and all that. But but the reality is it comes back to this um, this joke that I heard many years ago now where, where you've got a group of scientists who decided, hey, we think we can take it from here. We think we got it. We understand everything we need to understand to prosper and flourish on the earth. And, and so they decided to go to God and tell him that, that they that they appreciated all he had done, but, but they didn't really need him anymore. And he said, well, before I back away, since it is my creation, um, how about this? How about I propose a, a little bit of a challenge to you? And that is, is that... Um, you create man exactly the way I did. And so one of them bends over and scoops up some earth and starts to form it. And God says, uh-uh, you got to get your own dirt. And, and that's the kind of idea. I mean, so even though we're, we're a scientifically advanced culture, we still don't have any way of getting our own dirt. <laughs> we don't have any way of pulling that part off that makes everything fertile from the start. I mean, the, the secret is in the soil, right? It's in the soil and it's in the seed. And it's in the rain and it's in, you know, all of that. And so, yeah, we can enhance things, but, but we can't get our own dirt. We still don't have the ability to do that. Uh, and we also can't make rain from nothing. We can make the sky. We can seed the clouds, but the clouds don't belong to us either. And so it's all that same idea. And then so then he says, what can we compare the kingdom of God with? It's like a grain of mustard. 
which when thrown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on the earth, yet when it's sown it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. So it's bigger than the bushes, the azaleas and things like that. It puts out large branches so the birds of the air can make its nest in them. So, so it's, there's a mystery of the kingdom. We, we don't know how all this works, but we, we do know that it's a mystery. And so in, in that mystery, we trust him with all things. And that's exactly what he's trying to get across to us is that we've got to, we've got to trust him in all things. We, we have to be wise as serpent, innocent as doves. We also have to come like children. We have to trust him at that level. Now, remember in the yesterday's lesson from Acts, Paul, had, Paul and Barnabas had moved on because they, they got uh, opposition from the Jews. And, and they said, we're going to go to the Gentiles now. And so, well, is that what they do? Well, no. It starts with now at Iconium. They entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believe. So they're still going to synagogues. They're still going to those people who are most familiar with the story. And, and essentially, they're being Paul Harvey and saying, let me tell you now the rest of the story. And so they, they, they're saying, you know, this is what you've been expecting. I'm here to tell you about Jesus and how he is the fulfillment of all your hopes and dreams and expectations that are based in Scripture. But then once they get people to believe and once, once they get people to come to their side, then things happen, right? So the unbelieving Jews, the ones who didn't believe Paul's story, uh, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brothers. So it, it's... They're planting false stories. They're telling things about the them that cause them to have their, the Gentiles to turn their minds against Paul and Barnabas. And, but in spite of that, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done at their hands. And so it's not just a proclamation of the word. There's more going on than that. There's, there's the proclamation plus... The sign, the sign proclamation that what they're saying is true. It's the validation of the message. It's the power given through that message. But the people of city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. And so then they come to this place at Lystra, which is in Lyconia, and they go there and come to, to that place. And, and Paul sees this guy who is in front of him, and what we're told is, is this guy has never walked in his life. So it's not like he became crippled. No, it, we're told that he's never walked in his life. And he listens to Paul, and Paul looks intently at him and sees that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up. And began walking. It, it, it leapt. So a guy who's never walked doesn't doesn't hesitatingly and haltingly get to his feet. He springs to his feet and begins to walk on those ankles, those legs that have never walked before. I have a brother-in-law right now who is in a rehab facility. He hasn't walked in three years. They're, they're doing really, really well. After five days, he walked 12 steps yesterday. Right? So th that's... That's one kind of healing. This is a completely and radically different kind of healing. This man who has never walked suddenly springs up and begins to walk. And the crowds then begin to proclaim and hail Paul and Barnabas. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they call Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now what I want you to do is go read a short mythology. And that mythology is called Baucus, B-A-U-C-I-S, and Philemon.
And Baucus and Philemon are a, are a, a, a couple, a poor couple, in Lyconia, which is where this is. And the story was told that Zeus and Hermes had come down to earth and couldn't find hospitality there. And then somebody said, hey, I heard about this couple. And so they go to Baucus and Philemon, and Baucus and Philemon provide extravagantly for them. And it's Zeus and Hermes, the gods had come to earth. It was written not too terribly long before this, and it was written in that very place. And so what they've seen is we've treated them badly. Now we better acclaim them. And so they decide to acclaim them as gods. This is the fulfillment of the story, the mythology that they had already heard that happened right here among them. And so now they're ready to proclaim them in the same way. Oh, wait, we didn't realize there were gods among us until right now. And oh, my goodness, do y'all remember that story? And, and here we go. And so now they pre- begin to acclaim them and say that the gods have come to earth. But they're doing it in the Lyconian language. And Paul and Barnabas don't know what's going on. And finally they realize, oh, my gosh, they're worshiping us. And then they have to run in the midst of them and say, stop doing these things. We're also men like you, of nature like you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. And and what, what they're basically saying is we're here not to proclaim us. This isn't about us. Our proclamation is about the God who did come to earth and who found great inhospitality. And instead of destroying the people who, who did the inhospitable things to him, he saved them. He prayed from them, for them from the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It, it's a powerful proclamation into a people who have their own myth and understanding what it would be like if God's came to earth and you were inhospitable to them. And, and Paul's telling them, I got a better story than that. I got a story of, of God who came to earth, and they were so inhospitable they killed him. But in so doing, they saved themselves because he took on all their sins and died for them. He loved them so much he didn't come to destroy them. He prayed for them and prayed for their salvation. That's the result of the inhospitality toward my God, not judgment. And so it tells the beauty and the wonder of the love of God and how our God is different from other gods because he's filled with grace. And that's all that really matters in the end. This is that it's an act of grace that God sent these men to these people who were inhospitable to them and yet came for their good and their salvation.